Psalm 126 is where we're going this morning, as well as Psalm 13 is where we're going to be as we continue in our series called Pilgriming with the Psalms, as we are walking through uh, this internal, the Christian life is an internal journey in many ways. There's these experiences of the Christian life called emotions, the ups and downs. Let me just confess something to you. Uh, I don't know about you, this has been a difficult series to do in the summer, this has been emotional. I'm a little bit weary of it, frankly. I and mean, it's really, to be honest, like every week I'm just like, oh man, I get to cry again through this this week as I study. Um, we have one more week that's going to be going to be a difficult kind of emotion next week, and then we'll turn to rejoicing, and then we'll jump into Acts. And so, for those of you that are not as melancholy naturally as some of us, you're more more sanguine. This has probably been a difficult series for you, um, but it's coming to a close. Um, but I hope it has been. Good. And for many of us, what we need often, these truths, are we need to have them instilled in our hearts, like kindling around our souls now, so that we, when we do enter into doubt or fear or sorrow, we have these truths already embedded, these tools, these resources that are there within our hearts and our minds that we can turn to. Psalm 126, hear God's word. It's a song of ascents. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. And then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams of the Negev. And verse 5 and 6 is where we're actually going to be focusing this morning. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Turn over to Psalm 13. Psalm 13 is going to be simply just another example in the Psalms of laments. That Again, I'll point to verses 5 and 6 of this psalm later on in our time together. But one to read this is a great example Of lament in the Psalms, to the choir master, a psalm of David. How long, O Lords? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I... I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This sends the reading of God's holy and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of our God, may it stand forever, even in the face of our deepest sorrows. Um, There is something um, incredibly redemptive that we find here in these passages, and particularly in Psalm 126, verses 5 and 6, but throughout the Psalms, there's something really powerful about the tears of God's people. Um, we find in the Scriptures over and over again that the sorrow of Christians leads not to their destruction, but ultimately to their incredible growth and fruits in righteousness. The Psalms articulate that our sorrows are actually meant to be the means of growth, not simply that our sorrows lead our end and we have growth at the end, but they're actually the means of growth and fruitfulness 
And so there's great work to be done in our sorrows. The Psalms create a great picture that reveals the nature of fruitful sorrow. And in understanding this labor in our sorrows, we can actually combat some significant false thinking that ends up in our hearts and our minds when we're in the midst of sorrows. Psalm 126, verses 5 and 6, gives us this wonderful picture that is going to shape our communication this morning. Let me read it again. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed of sorrow, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. There is a lesson here as to what we're to do with our sorrows, that there's a purpose with them. Here's where we're going to go this morning in understanding our sorrow. First, we're going to look at the sowing of our sorrow. Then we're going to look at the harvesting. And finally, at the cultivating. Sowing, harvesting, cultivating. That is the imagery that we're given in Psalm 126. That we weep and we have tears of sorrow, almost like a farmer plants his crops. So point one, sowing the sowing of sorrow. What we see in 126 is we are actually not only it was. Do, do we sorrow, but we are expected to sorrow. In fact, we're expected to express our sorrow. Did you know that the most common form of psalm, more than any other psalm, is lament? This is the songbook of God's people, and what we see more than anything else is lament. That tells us that lament, that sorrows, that tears are to be a normal part, an expected part of the Christian life. John Updike, who's a um, fairly famous novelist, um, he talks about Westerners and commenting about them. He says this, we Westerners have lost whole octaves of passion. Whole octaves of passion. Then he goes on to say that third world women can still make inhuman, piercing, grieving noise right from the floor of their souls. We've lost that ability. Ever seen somebody from the Middle East grieve? It sounds like that. The shriek of one who has lost much. For some reason, for many of us as Christians, we believe it has gotten into our subconscious that if you, when you're a Christian, you will cry less. In reality, when you become a, a Jesus follower, when you become a Christian, actually what will happen is you will find is the tears will flow all the more. I'm going to give you three reasons why, real quickly. First is this. Christians experience more sorrow because we are a people that are aware of our sin and the heartbreak it causes to the heart of God. Before you become a Christian, before the Spirit of God renews and gives you a new heart, before your heart is softened, your heart is hard to the brokenness of your sin. In fact, what do we see? Is we see that people, when they are broken, when they are brought to tears over their sin, that that is even a means of bringing them into the rejoicing of their salvation. So that's one way. Second, we see that Christians experience more sorrow because we are a people who experience persecution. Jesus says it. You could expect that if you follow me, you will be persecuted. There will be sorrows. There will be spiritual warfare in your life that other people don't have to experience. Because guess what? When you become a believer, the war has finally actually started. There is no war in your life before that. But now, as a believer in Christ Jesus, all the gates of hell are set up against you. And the third, and I think even most, maybe most significant reason, is Christian sorrow. We have more tears because Christians now sorrow over the brokenness of our world. We suddenly find compassion in our hearts 
that we suddenly see with new eyes the consequences of the fall that is seen all around us. This, there is, this is seen so much in the great metaphor in the Old Testament and in the New of being given new hearts. They have been softened now. That before, when you would see broken things in this world, you could walk past them and simply remain selfish and self-centered. But now when you have Jesus' eyes, you are welled up with tears out of compassion for the brokenness of those around you. How many of you saw the picture of that little boy from Syria this week? Listen, if you do not see that picture and go, this is a consequence of the brokenness of this world, and it brings you to sorrow, then I'm sorry you're trying to skirt past it in a self-centered way. You're trying to deny the brokenness of what's going on around us. You see, when we are non-believers, before we come to Jesus, we have all forms of self-defense mechanisms that protect us from feeling the, the harshness of the, the realities of this world. But more than that, even more than that, we begin to have the eyes of Jesus. And how did Jesus see the world when he came here? How is he described in Isaiah 53? Is he a man of laughter? No, he is called the man of sorrows. That he comes and when he sees Jerusalem, he weeps for the people. He is a man of great joy, but he's also a man of great sorrows. Far from being a sign of weakness, Christians will weep and have more sorrows because it, and it will actually be the means of making us useful for the kingdom of God, not making us useless for the kingdom of God. Charles Spurgeon says it this way, I think so well. He says, when a man's heart is so stirred that he weeps over the sins of others, he is now elect to usefulness. Winners of souls are first weepers of souls. So children of God, brothers and sisters, those who have been given new hearts, are you weepers? We are to sow our tears in this world. Now, there's some implications and applications of this for us. The truth that is, that is communicated in the Psalms and the Scriptures helps us confront a myth that somehow gets in us for some reason. And that is that if we are experiencing suffering or we are experiencing sorrow and tears in our lives, it is a sign that God is against us. And what it means is, what that means is that our sorrow becomes compounded. It becomes two levels. We have the sorrow over the things in which we are grieving for, and then we're also sorrowing over the fact that we think that God is against us even as we grieve. There is, there is guilt that lurks behind so much of our suffering. That is the assumption. Whenever we suffer, we ask questions like, why does God hate me? We ask, what did I do wrong? What have I done wrong to deserve this kind of suffering and bring this kind of sorrow into my life? And frankly, those questions are they're realistic, aren't they? They're logical. There's a kernel of truth in them because we know that we are sinners. We know that we deserve God's judgment for him to bring significant punishment in our lives. But what does the cross tell us about our grieving? It tells us, one, that we should grieve, that it should be expected. But not only that, it also says that any times there are consequences in your life because of your sin, no longer is it punishment for which you must sorrow over. It is merely discipline. And the end of discipline is your joy. It is not hell. You see, if you are sorrowing over the losses of this life and then you also realize that this, these are punishments, this is God's wrath poured out against you, your sorrow will go deeper than the depths of hell. It will have no end. It will be an endless pit. But if you understand behind your sorrow is a God who looks on you with love, even when he brings difficult consequences into your life, that there is a means, there's a reason to rejoice, and one day your sorrow will come to an end and it will be met with rejoicing. 
Jesus on the cross tells us we, have, we will have sorrow as a Christian, but it shapes our expectations, shapes our expectations and relieves us of the kind of the double sorrow that so many in this world experience. Not only that they're sorrowing about the things and the losses in their life, but also that God hates them. But not only that, Psalm 126 tells us that we sorrow, we sow our sorrows, but there is a wondrous harvest that comes about when we sow our sorrows. We pour out our tears. That harvest is a harvest of joy. The harvest of our sorrow. In other words, we're being told, we're being called to plant, to sow our tears, to see your tears as an opportunity to grow in joy. Psalm 30, verse 5 is a very famous text that talks about this. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. That is a famous phrase. We sing it. I think there's a Christian song that goes just like that. There was a famous um, commentator named Derek Kidner on the Psalms, one of the top commentators out there, and he says this, that many times in the Old Testament, many times in the Bible, that if you're a believer, what we find, the consistent picture is that sorrow will give way to joy. Your sorrow, you may have sorrow, but if you believe in him, you can have confidence that one day it will give way to joy. But I want to say this, that Psalm 126 goes even further than that. It tells us something more, something more profound. You see, the Bible teaches that not only will our tears give way to joy, but it actually tells us in this psalm that our tears are the means to joy. It is the means of producing joy. We sow tears, and from that sowing comes a harvest of joy is the logic here. This passage is saying that if you plant your tears and you cultivate them well, then eventually you'll have a harvest of joy that will last forever. We see this articulated in the New Testament as well. Another famous text in 2 Corinthians 4, chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, it says this. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For the light momentary affliction is preparing for us the affliction is preparing. It is the means of producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That's what the ESV is saying, it's preparing. In the old um, authorized standard version, it actually says producing in us. It is developing in us glory. But this is what our sorrow does. Not only is it, are we waiting, the, the biblical idea is not just simply that we are waiting for our sorrows to come to an end so that then we can experience joy, but that it's through our sorrows that we experience joy. This perspective of our sorrows means that we, we need not put on fake joy. You see, so often what we think about is what we see at least these commands to, be, to rejoice and these commands to be a joyous Christian. And so when we're feeling sorrowful, we have this need to cover over our sorrow and immediately jump to the platitudes of joy. But so often it's a fake joy. We have not done the, the difficult labor of crying our way into our joy, of weeping our way into joy. This kind of joy, the joy you really need, is not the joy that says, all right, I'm going to put aside the feelings of sorrow. I'm going to ignore them. I'm here in church, and we're going to sing happy songs. And so I'm just going to convince myself to feel happy. That's a fake joy. What the scriptures are actually saying that the joy that you need is the joy that coexists with your tears and that is produced by your tears. 1 Peter 1, 6 says this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Now this is really interesting. What do we see in 1 Peter 6? We see present tense going on in both the rejoicing and in the grieving. You see it? In this you rejoice, present tense. 
Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. They're going on side by side. Tim Keller says this. I think it's a helpful explanation of this passage. He says, it is remarkable that both statements are not only they made in the present tense, that they are rejoicing in their salvation even as they are, even as they are in sorrow and suffering. The Greek word here for suffering is lupeo, which means to, is to suffer severe mental or emotional distress. That's what's being communicated in 1 Peter 1. Significantly, this is the same usage that we see with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he's weeping, and yet we see that he is a man full of joy. We tend to think that we must dry our tears and dry away our feelings of sadness to, in order to feel, just to exhibit this rejoicing. But that's not the case. Tim Keller once again says this. This is a difficult concept, he says, for modern Western people, since we think of our feelings as mostly wholly sovereign things. In other words, what we feel, that's sovereign in our life. That's king in our life. We either feel happy or we don't. And we think we can't force our feelings. And that is right, he says. We must not deny or try to create feelings. But we must remember that in the Bible, the heart is not identical to our emotions. Our emotions are the gauge. They reveal what's going on in our hearts. The heart is understood as the place of our deepest commitments, trusts, and hopes. And from those commitments flow our emotions, thoughts, and actions. To rejoice in God means to dwell on, to think on, and to remind ourselves of who God is, who he, we are, and what he has done. Sometimes our emotions respond and follow when we do this. And sometimes they do not. In other words, you can be rejoicing even if you don't feel happy. Rejoicing is found far deeper than simply how you feel. It is found in who you're looking, looking to and what that says about you and what it says about God's. How is that? How can we have both grief and sorrow? The answer is this is that as we grieve and as we sorrow, we are draw, driven into greater rejoicing because our grief and sorrow drive us deeper into God. It drives us more thoroughly to him. St. Augustine says this. He said how suddenly comforting it was to lose the false comforts of the past. So he sorrows all these things, the false comforts of his past. I had long feared losing them, and now it was a joy to have thrown them away. Truly, it was you, he's speaking to God, it was you who put them far from me, my true and supreme comfort. You put them far away and set them in their place. What he is saying is, we, we have all these things that we are resting on for our joy in this life. And there are times and seasons where God will remove those things from us, and it grieves us, and we ought to sorrow in the midst of the loss of those things. But the point is that God removes them from us so that we are driven more to him, so that he is our comfort, so that he is our joy. This is the difference between real rejoicing and fake rejoicing. People who have taken their, their sorrows to God in the hopes of getting more of God. Now this flies in the face, to apply this, this flies in the face of self-pity. This is exposes self-pity. You know, in my generation, there's been a revival of sorts of understanding the emotions it's the, the kind of pop psychology of our day that's kind of driven itself into kind of the normal uh, dialogue of today. But we, while we have said that there is a place, my, my generation has said there's a place for doubts and fears and sorrows, we still have not redeemed it very often. What I find is that my generation, full of melancholy, we are actually whiners. 
constantly enthralled with the supposed emotional maturity of our self-pity. Did you hear me? That we, listen, social media has made this very easy, right? To get on and communicate our deepest woes today at all points of all days, always, always, always. And we, we fancy ourselves to be very emotionally mature because of this. But frankly, all we have done in that is we have not followed the road of, re, of sorrow into rejoicing. We have followed the road of sorrow into self-pity. You see, self-pity, all it does is it's sorrow that focuses on the sorrow itself. What God longs for our sorrow, and the reason why the Psalms can say that joy or that sorrow leads you to joy, is that when God brings sorrow into your life, it is a means of driving you to Him, not to be self-obsessed with how terrible your life is. These are two very different things. Christianity says that our sorrow is not in vain, but it has a purpose. Therefore, when you communicate about your sorrows, you should do so in such a way that says, I want God in the midst of this. I want to experience who God is and have joy in him in the midst of this. Now, how do we get there? You see that the harvest is joy, that we're to sow our tears, but there's a big gap between sowing and harvesting, isn't there? There's something else that must go, go on here. Between harvesting and sowing is cultivating. It's cultivating our tears. This is the hard work of not simply turning to self-pity, of self-obsession over how terrible our lives are, but doing the difficult and challenging work of turning ourselves over to who God is and what he has done for us. See, unless we cultivate our tears and our sorrows, we may find that our sorrows are fruitless. Our hearts become hardened, and there is no joy that is a result of our tears, but simply bitterness and self-pity. So the cultivation of our sorrows, how do we do this? For this, I turn to Psalm 13, verses 5 and 6 says this, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. What does the psalmist do? He says, he starts out, how long, O Lord? He's weeping. He's crying out for God. The psalm ends with rejoicing. What's the middle? The turn of the, of the text is, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. And he rejoices in God's salvation. What the psalmist knew in generalities, that God is a God who saves and that God is a God of steadfast love, we know in fullness because the fullness of God's salvation has been made known in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And therefore, if you want to cultivate your tears rightly, if you want to not waste your sorrows, to use John Piper type language, don't want to waste your tears, then you must cultivate them at the foot of Jesus at the foot of the cross. I'm going to give you three promises that drive these things, that drive these things into your hearts, these truths, that when we sorrow, we drive ourselves to these things so that we may grow in rejoicing. The first is this, that Jesus in the cross reveals that God answers our sorrows. You know, and this is not simply in Jesus in the cross. This is actually runs throughout the scriptures. When the people of Israel are in Egypt and they're enslaved and Moses goes up to the burning bush, God talks to Moses. And what does he say to Moses? He says this, I have, hear, I have heard the cries of my people and I'm going to save them. And that is the same thing that is going on. The reason why Jesus comes to earth 
is because the cries of God's people have tweaked the messianic nerve within God. The nerve that says, I will save my people. I'll remember my promises. I will come to their aid. God answers our tears. And his answer fully is Jesus Christ. And you see the same thing with Jesus, right? Jesus comes and he weeps over the tomb of Lazarus. He may not come in our timing, but he weeps. And he comes to engage and to answer our greatest suffering. Neither the Father nor the Son is unmoved by our tears. He hears it. God hears it and he responds to us. That's one thing to remember that will lead to joy. The second is this. That Jesus to the cross proves God's understanding presence as we sorrow. It proves God's understanding presence as we sorrow. Jesus understands your tears. No other God can say that. No other God can say that. Why do we listen to sad songs? Some of you may not listen to sad songs. I, I'm fairly melancholy by personality. Some of you are really sanguine, and so you can't... Like, this whole series has driven you nuts. But if you melancholy people, we like... Right, our, our, our genre is usually, right, acoustic. We like acoustic. Um, that's us, melancholy people. Why do we like sad songs? Because we feel like somebody understands our sorrows. We feel like we have someone who's engaging and giving voice to our sorrows. You take your tears to people who understand who've been through what you've been through. So when you come to God and you ask why, do you have a God who doesn't understand you? You see, one of the things that we would like to say, if you think about the great sorrows and sufferings and the worst moments of your life, what you want to say is, God, why don't you come down here and why don't you feel this sorrow? You're up there in heaven and you're God. Isn't that great for you? But I'm down here and I'm little old me and this stinks and this hurts. Well, guess what we have in the gospel is we have the one religion and one God in the world who said, yes, I will come down. I will enter in. I will engage with your sorrows. I will experience all the suffering that you have experienced. I'll experience loss. I'll experience pain. I'll experience suffering unimaginable. This is what Dr. Luke tells us about the Garden of Gethsemane. What does it say? What does he say about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? The night before, as Jesus is about to be betrayed, and he's going to go to the cross. What does it say about his soul? It says that he is sorrowful nearly to the point of death. Have you ever experienced that kind of sorrow? That he is so sorrowful that his capillaries burst and he sweats blood. That is the sorrow, the, the anguish that Jesus feels. No other God has entered into sorrow like that. No other God, but our God has. You pray your tears to God because he understands your grief. And not only that, but he has lived in your grief. He has walked a mile in your shoes. Psalm 22, it's one of the laments of the Psalms. And Jesus cries it on the cross. He laments. He is a man of sorrows. This is who God is. And it's actually in this that we also see the fact that we way in which we rejoice because when... When you are in, unto, in extreme suffering and sorrow and pain, you, you may experience God in a way that you've never experienced him before, his presence in a way that you've never experienced him before. Dostoevsky said this, the darker the night, the brighter the stars, the deeper the grief, the closer is God. His theology isn't quite right. God is never, in regards to degrees, closer or further away from us. 
But our experience of God being closer is definitely different when we're in dark, deep darkness and grief. So you get to go to the God who understands your sorrows. Lastly, lastly, the way you cultivate your sorrows is taking it to God in prayer and laying before Jesus and the cross because Jesus and the cross assures us of glory. Psalm 126 says that those who sow seeds of sorrow, what, what happens to them? They might reap joy. Maybe. I hope no, it says they shall. It is a promise. It is a guarantee. And it's a promise and it's a guarantee that is sealed and insured by the cross of Jesus Christ. The Psalms that we started out consistently take the pattern of lament. But what they consistently do, we see is it goes this pattern. Paul starts out, like in Psalm 13, how long, O Lord? And then he goes on to talk about how terrible it is and how he has, he has flooded his bed with tears with poetic imagery. But then eventually there's like this almost like schizophrenic turn with David or the one of the psalmists, and suddenly he's like, but I will rejoice. I will rejoice. The, 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 the weeping gives way to the joy. We find that this is not only true with individual psalms, but this is actually true with the whole of the psalms. Did you know that Psalm 146 through 150, there is not a single word of lament. The psalms end... Because all in, in eschatological, in the, in, the, in the view of all of history, all sorrows will eventually end in rejoicing for those in Christ Jesus. Eugene Peterson said this, any prayer, no matter how desperate its origin, no matter how angry and fearful the experience it traverses, ends up in praise. It does not always get there easily or quickly, he says. The trip can take a lifetime. But the end is always praise. Some people, you know, some people say time heals all wounds. That's silly. For some of you, time is going to make things worse in your sorrows. It is the end of time that will heal all wounds. It is the hope that at the end of all things, there will be one who will finally and fully lead your sorrows and quiet your tears and bring it to a place of rejoicing. And isn't this what John gives us? To a church at the end of the Bible, you see, it's not just individual psalms that have this pattern of weeping giving way to joy. It's not the whole of the psalms that has this pattern. It is the whole Bible that has this pattern. That the world, we have reason to weep and to sorrow. But what we find in Revelation, when John is writing to a church that is seeing its sons and daughters ripped from their arms and taken from this world by those who are persecuting them, John says this in Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will what? Wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Time, time does not heal. Hope in the resurrection and the second coming of Jesus Christ, that heals wounds. The world we live in, brothers and sisters, right? We, we, we've titled this series, Pilgriming with the Psalms. 
it is a, it is a long road to the promised land. And it is a journey and it's a pilgrimage that is stained with tears. But it is to a place where our tears will finally cease and we will enter into joy for all of eternity. Listen, if you are at a place, my fear for you, so many of you, the things that derail and make our, our sorrows fruitless. Some, for some of us, it's guilt. It crushes us. For some of us, it's turning our sorrow into self-pity. And for some of us, we uproot our sorrows and we move into emotional shallowness because we have no hope that the harvest is coming. The cross guarantees that the harvest will be here one day. So can you continue to cry? Can you continue to weep? Will you leave yourself emotionally vulnerable in that way? So that hopefully with great joy, you can experience the fullness of God's grace to you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I I pray for those in this room who find that sorrow and tears are very fresh. The wounds of suffering um, feel like they have not closed up. They are tender, and they are in a, in a weak place. God, I just pray that those who are in that place this morning, God, that they would be willing to cry. I pray for the men in this room who feel insecure and feel like they're failing as fathers and as husbands, and they have failed, and that is a reason to grieve. I pray that they would cry over that, that they would weep for their failings, but Lord, their their weeping would not be endless. It would not be an endless pit. But in their sorrow, they would meet Jesus. Pray for the women in this place who have sorrowed over the fact that they've lost a child, and they grieve as Rachel grieved. I pray that they would cry and they would weep. It is worth weeping over because you weep over these things, God. This is a world that was, we were not supposed to lose children in the womb. Lord, this is supposed to be a place of joy and beauty. And so, God, I pray that we would be emotionally available enough, that we would be secure enough in your love and your grace and your mercy, that we would be a people who would fall apart in your presence. And that having spent time weeping before you, Lord, you would make us a people who are gold, strong as steel. That even in our grieving, we can move forward with rejoicing, that we would not get caught into apathy. But Lord, we would move forward into the sorrows of others. But Lord, we would move forward, even in our grieving, into a life of productivity and fruitfulness for the glory of your name. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.